You may open your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for just a moment. We want to consider further this morning the ancient landmarks that our fathers have set. And we want to hold to those landmarks. We want to seek the old paths. We want to seek for paths as old as the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, brothers, for reading the Scriptures to us. Those are wonderful passages. We had read to us Ezekiel chapter 22, the last part of that chapter, 2 Timothy chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, about coming out from among the world and being separate from them. And then Jude in the warning that judgment is coming upon all those that are ungodly and on false prophets and false teachers and that we are to separate ourselves from them. But the Lord told us they would come. And we're living in a generation where there are many of them. I hope that you can look at our situation and be thankful and be humbled that God has chosen us to live in the perilous times of the last days. If we were a congregation that knew we were part of the 7,000 in the days of Elijah, would that make you thankful and humble you at the same time and provoke your zeal to want to be faithful? We are part of a 7,000. We don't know what the number is. But it's a small number considering 6.5 billion people on planet earth. And I want you all to be faithful. And I want to be faithful myself. And I want our church to be faithful. And I want our children and grandchildren to be faithful. These things are important. If you understood Deuteronomy 6 that you read last night and I opened the service with this morning, you can see that we are to fear the Lord our God by keeping His commandments, statutes, and judgments, and He is a jealous God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, which I've been over many times with you, and I will continue to do so, because it's a prophecy that affects us directly. And of all the prophecies in the Bible, this prophecy probably affects us the most directly, and it's the most personal, and it requires the most holiness from us. The first five verses are a long list of character traits of the perilous times of the last days that we want to avoid. We want to avoid those that teach them. We want to avoid those that allow them. But I just want to read to you verses 6 and 7 for the moment. Speaking of false teachers, teaching a false form of godliness that has no power, those that love pleasure more than they love God, we come to verse 6, for of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. There is an effeminate brand of religion in our country and around the world where false teachers creep into houses and take captive the vulnerable sex who puffed up in their pride and their lust to reject the role that God gave them, they want to be ever learning. They want an important role of teaching. And so these false teachers take advantage of them. And so-called Christian churches today are filled with these women and the creeps that go after them. May God bless us that in this church, From this pulpit, 
the word will be directed mostly to the men. And the men are to take that word home and apply it to their families. So that we line up with statements such as 1 Corinthians 14, where it says, if she will learn anything, let her ask her husband at home. This is another landmark. And before I finish this series, we will come back to the point that I just mentioned. We will not emphasize women. We love our women. We're thankful for every one of them. We're thankful for our girls, our daughters, our granddaughters. But when it comes to the house of God and the worship of God, they have a subordinate role to the place of men. The problem in families are not the women need more teaching. The men need more teaching. And if you look from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's the men that were the leaders and should be the leaders. But my point is, in verses 6 and 7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth are those ancient landmarks our fathers set. They describe the truth. They direct us to heaven. They direct us in the way that we are to worship God. And these false teachers and these women, filled with lust, laden with sins, who are enamored with these effeminate teachers, are ever learning, but they're never able to come to that knowledge. And I want you to think about that right now for just a few seconds. There are so many seminars, so many Bible tele-evangelists, so many others giving women a vehicle to learn, and they're ever learning. You know, I love to look at this expression, creep into houses. There has never been the ability to creep into houses like there is today with a coaxial cable. There's never been the ability to creep into houses as there is today with however your internet is connected. False teachers are creeping into houses after women more than ever before by a great, by many factors. And they never come to the knowledge of the truth. They miss the landmarks. They miss the landmarks. Oh, they want to study this and they want to study that. You need to sit down and watch Christian television for just a few minutes and see all the garbage that they're learning. All the hours spent on studying the furniture of the Old Testament. If I wanted to show you a picture of my wife, why would I take you out in the yard and show you a shadow of her in the dusk of the evening? Why not go straight to the New Testament We're told to be able ministers of the New Testament, not the Old. Who cares about the furniture of the Old? You don't know what it means because God hasn't told you what every piece means. All it was was a shadow. And from a shadow, you can't see anything clearly. And it's a waste of time to look at shadows. That's just one example. They go on and on. You know, you can buy your little cloth, your little prayer cloth. You can buy a little bit of anointing oil. You can buy your little model of the tabernacle and set it up at home as if God the Holy Spirit is dwelling between the cherubim of a plastic, of a plastic tabernacle. Right. All this garbage. And women just love it to, oh women, women love little thing, knickknacks like that. To have a little knickknack that's a little tabernacle from the Old Testament and to think that God might be coming down and dwelling between plastic cherubim. Bring the presence of, oh you think I'm kidding. You don't watch, you need to watch it once in a while. They've got a little cloth that you can put over your door that's to be in place of the blood of the Passover lamb. Oh, they've got them all. Of course, they want you to sow a seed. They want you to sow a seed for a harvest because they're out after your money. And the Bible warned us about that. They devour widows' houses. Right. 
Uh, didn't we read that in uh, Ezekiel chapter 22 that those false prophets were after the widows as well right. in that place? Yes, we did. There is much learning going on of a religious sort in the world. We live in the information explosion. It is easier to communicate with the whole world or anyone than ever before. But they're not coming to the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is established by God's landmarks that are set up by the Bible. And that's what we're studying this for. Look at chapter 4 of the same epistle. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. The religious world today is being directed by fables. Fables. That's not my word. That's the blessed God's word in 1611 in our English translation. Fables. They're following nursery rhymes. Children's stories. Fiction. As they think they're worshiping God and it's unacceptable. They shall turn their ears away from the truth. We want the landmarks of truth. That's why I'm preaching this to you. Because God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And they have turned their ears away from the truth. They are ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. They aren't even close to it. And they are departing more and more every year. So we must reestablish the landmarks that we are going to follow in this church for this year, next year, and however long the Lord allows us to remain here. And young men and young women, I'm hoping that you will be faithful to these landmarks and that you will never give up one of them until the Lord shows you with overwhelming evidence, not a little bit of evidence, you are to hold fast what you have been taught. You are to stand fast and hold it. If the Lord shows you something with overwhelming evidence from the Bible only, then you may consider altering a landmark. Until then, follow the landmarks your fathers have set. We are Bible Christians. We are Bible Christians because without the Bible, we would not know about the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the combination of the two words, Bible Christians. We're not Christian biblicists. We're Bible Christians. Because without the Bible, we wouldn't know about Jesus Christ. Consider. Stop and think about that for just a moment. You can know something about God by the heavens declaring His glory and the firmament showing His handiwork. Day into day uttereth speech about the existence of an eternal God. However, His Son Jesus Christ is purely by revelation. And it's by revelation in the Bible. So we're Bible Christians. And we've established that one of our landmarks is that we are King James Bible people. And we hold the King James Bible. And the Bible is the only source of our doctrine and our practice, whether it's private or public. It has all the answers for us. It's able to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. We know that. This Bible teaches us something about Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 1. I want you to think about another landmark with me now. I've been over the Bible one. You know it well. We're Bible Christians. If it's not in the Bible, we don't care how many are interested in it. We don't care how popular it might be, and we don't care what they threaten to do to us. To take us away from the Bible, we're going to stick with the Bible. As I spoke to a brother last night, I said, and it was very, very sober at that moment, we have staked our lives in this world. 
And we have staked our hope of eternal life on that book. Oh, yes, you can say we've staked it on Jesus Christ. You wouldn't know about Him if it wasn't for this book. We have staked our lives and our futures on the Bible. We reject the Koran. We reject the Book of Mormon. We reject all the other writings of all other religions. We reject anything that Mary Baker Eddy wrote, Ellen G. Harmon wrote. We reject it all. We're Bible Christians. Amen. And we've staked our souls on it. If the Bible isn't true, then we're in trouble. The Bible is true. Amen. And if you want to get roused up on that, go back a few years and find a series of messages entitled, Why I Believe the Bible. Thank You, Lord, for giving us a rock for our feet, a light for our path. John chapter 1. Here's another pillar, a landmark that we want in our church. Verse 17. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. We want Jesus Christ to be preeminent in our church. The focus of all our attention. The highest honors given to Him. The most praise given to Him. We want Jesus Christ to have the preeminence in this church. This is a landmark of our church. We don't want it to be personalities. We don't want it to be programs. We don't want it to be popularity. We want it to be the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at John chapter 3. John 3. Remember, remember, I can't deal in, I'm not dealing in detail on any of these points. And they, they, they have been dealt in de- with in detail. And I could deal with them in detail. But the point is right now to remind ourselves of what's important in our church. John 3 and verse 30. I love these words of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. There's a motto for our church. He must increase, but I must decrease. We want to put the Lord Jesus Christ up high. And we want to put ourselves down low. He is the head of this church. He is He that filleth all in all. That's what the Bible says about Him. Look at Colossians. The book of Colossians, please. And chapter 1. You quizzers that have been learning the book of Hebrews. I love the book of Hebrews because its message is so simple. Jesus Christ is superior to everything of the Old Covenant. Chapter after chapter. What's Jesus Christ compared to in chapter 1? The angels. And He's superior to those angels. And Paul Paul deals with measure after measure after measure. For unto which of the angels said He at any time, Thou art My Son, this day have I begotten Thee. And again, I will be to Him a Father, and He shall be to Me a Son. And again... Let all the angels of God worship Him. And again, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And again, He's anointed with the oil of gladness above His fellows. And again, are not the angels just servants for those that shall be heirs of eternal life? But He is God, and He has an eternal throne, and He's the Son of God, He's our Savior, He's our Lord, He's the Creator of the angels. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's get verse 17. Oh, let's get verse 16. Let's get verse 15. Oh, where do we end? 
If you go into Colossians chapter 1 and try to just pick out one verse about Jesus Christ, you're in trouble. But we'll start at 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us always make sure that our songs are lifting up Jesus Christ, our prayers are lifting up Jesus Christ, the preaching from this pulpit lifts up Jesus Christ. Our conversation lifts up Jesus Christ. What, what aspect of Him do you want to consider? What can I tell you about my beloved? He is the fairest of 10,000, and He is superior to any man, angel, or other being that you can even imagine. By every measure, and by any measure. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? We must keep Him the central part of our church. Right. He is our head. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's all in all. Amen. Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen. Paul said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, right. by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Let's keep it that way in this church. That's one of our landmarks. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Mary's not going to compete with Him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Gabriel or Moroni of the Mormons is not going to compete with Him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Ellen Harmon White is not going to compete with Him. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. No one gets close to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's love Him and serve Him. And let's keep Him a landmark in our church. I had pleasure just on this one little point yesterday, adding a few references from the book of Hebrews. You don't want me to get started on that list. Do you think there's a few verses in Hebrews that lift up the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you think there's a few in each chapter? It's precious. Let's turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. The preeminence of Jesus Christ we want to keep central. We want to lift Him up. We want to think about everything that the Bible tells us about Him. We want to behold His beauty. And we want to adore that beauty. We want to speak of that beauty to others. If you were to look at these pamphlets over here as to what is planned for the known services in Malaysia, you'll see that I'm preaching some of my favorite subjects when I'm not following the course of study laid out already for me in the Bible conference. Because I want to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ on the other side of the earth. I want all the lands to know about Jesus Christ our Savior. And if I can provoke them a little bit to love Him more dearly, I'll be amply rewarded for the trip. But let's shift the Lord our God, our Father, and see what the Bible says about Him. Psalm 115, I want to read the first seven verses. I want to read the first eight verses. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, 
but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. You know, the heathen used to say to Israel, where's your God? Because if you went down Main Street of their capital city, you would find a temple and there would be an image of their God. But there was no image of the God of Israel. Where is your God? Our God is in the heavens. He's not in a crescent moon on the top of a mosque. Because we don't worship Allah. I can't wait to get to the other side of the earth in a Muslim country and declare there is one God. And His name is Jehovah. And His Son is Jesus Christ. I don't care about Allah or His prophet. Our God is in the heavens. And He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. We worship a sovereign God. And I hope you glory in that. And let us keep that as a landmark of this church. Let us never dilute the character or the conduct or the actions of the God of the Bible by any hallucination of men. They are constantly trying to alter the perception that we have of God. This is the revelation we want. Right here. He drowned the earth with a flood. And we should not forget that. That is mentioned throughout the Bible. That God drowned children, old people, senior citizens, infants, women, men alike in the flood of Noah. That's part of His character. That was one of His actions. That was one of the things that He did that was terrible to the sons of men that we read about earlier in Psalm 66. Let us protect our God and His reputation on earth. He does not need us, but He calls us to remember Him as the Bible declares truth about Him. Look at Daniel chapter 4, please. Please come to Daniel chapter 4. Oh, I love Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar got to meet our God. You know, he tried a golden image. He worshipped Bel of the Babylonians. But he got to meet our God. There was a seven-year introductory preamble before he got to meet him. Seven years of crawling around like cattle. But he got to meet the Lord. I love Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 is a page out of the congressional or executive record of the kingdom of Babylon. It was written not by Daniel. It was written by Nebuchadnezzar. Look at the first word of of that chapter. Nebuchadnezzar the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are His signs! Exclamation point. This is a personal letter from Nebuchadnezzar to all lands in his domain. He is going to tell what the high God hath wrought toward me. 
And he tells about Daniel warning him that if he did not break off his sins, he was going to lose the tranquility of his reign, and he was going to be turned out from men. His hairs were going to grow out like bird feathers, and he was going to get claws, and he was going to be out under the elements. And sure enough, that's right where he went. But look at verse 34. Praise the Lord. I love the God of the Bible. I love the only God. The true and living God. The greatest monarch the earth has ever seen with the most absolute despotic power ever had by one man. Here's what he had to say. Verse 34 of Daniel 4. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. And mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored Him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? Children and grandchildren. You protect the God of the Bible. Do not let anyone modify the God of the Bible. He has not changed. He never will change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a God of love, but He does not love everything or everyone. He can only love holy objects. He is a God of judgment, and He judges sinners. He's already given all mankind a chance in the Garden of Eden. He doesn't owe them another one. There is no other God to be compared to Him. He is great and terrible in both Testaments. He is a consuming fire in the New Testament. It is a terrible thing to fall into His hands in the New Testament. Knowing the terror of the Lord is a verse from the New Testament. Don't let anyone change your perception of God from what the Bible says. It doesn't matter what everyone else wants God to be. The deists want God to be a watchmaker that made the earth and all men on it and wound it up and let it go. But our God is not a watchmaker only. Our God is active in the affairs of all men. We live and move in Him and have our being, Paul said in Acts chapter 17 to those philosophers in Athens. They say that God is watching us from a distance. The Bible says that He is present everywhere at all times. Don't ever forget about Him. And we could go on and on, but remember, this is not a study of the glory of God. I've done that before. So I I have to leave a subject that I love dearly and that I believe you love dearly. But don't ever let anyone change the God of the Bible. They will water Him down in every way they can. But He has not changed, nor will He change. He is the great and dreadful God. He is a terrible God. And that makes His love toward us as His children all the more precious. What a difference He has made. He is the potter and we are the clay. We have been through many other landmarks of our faith. I want to come to one now. And you may turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Before the Lord Jesus Christ died, as He sat with His disciples... They had prepared themselves for the Passover supper. 
by taking a bath and coming together to sit, but to even walk from the public bath to the place of the upper room where they were going to have supper. They got their feet dirty. The Lord, having ended supper, girded Himself with a towel and washed their feet and said, I've given you an example and you ought to wash one another's feet as well. I was ordained to preach foot washing as part of worshiping God in a public assembly. And those of you that have been here since 1984 remember that. The Lord in His mercy showed us after that time that that example in John chapter 13 was for His apostles in a day and time where men had dirty feet and had them washed by anyone who truly wanted to show the spirit of a servant. It wasn't a symbolic act. It was a real act. It was really washing dirty feet. The Lord showed us from another passage of Scripture that we're going to go to in a moment that it could not have been an ordinance for the whole church. That it was a private practice done by those who had true humility and who loved the role of a servant. I'll show you in just a moment. I don't change anything hastily. And I didn't change that hastily. There is a seven-page, single-spaced outline on that subject, and we're not covering that today. I'm just going to give you a few of the high points and remind you that in our church we changed. And I'm going to show you why we changed. Foot washing began in the Roman Catholic Church. They wash feet on Monday, Thursday. The Thursday before Good Friday. The bishop or the celebrant, the one that's observing the Mass, washes the feet of twelve communicants. They started it, and others have followed them. The Seventh-day Adventists wash feet. The Mennonites wash feet. My father went to seminary by the brethren that wash feet. Some of the primitive Baptists wash feet. We used to wash feet. We have friends that wash feet. And we no longer wash feet. We wear shoes... And we don't have dirty feet that need to be washed. And nowhere was that ever practiced in a New Testament church. If you read all the epistles, the epistles tell us that baptism continues on as an ordinance. If you read the epistles, it tells us communion continues on as an ordinance. Nothing about washing feet. I mean, we're in Luke chapter 7, and we don't have time. This is, we're just hitting the high points and going to the next point. Luke chapter 7 and verse 44. Jesus is in the house of Simon the Pharisee and He has that sinful woman at His feet begging to be forgiven. He turned to the woman in Luke 7.44 and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. He is pointing out that this woman is treating me the way I should be treated. She's showing me the kindness and the hospitality and the service and the humility. You won't, Simon. And I'm using this one verse to stand in place for 50 references or 20 or 30 that we could pull from the Old Testament to show that washing feet was a kindness done to someone who had been traveling. You know that even if you're wearing tennis shoes and they're not made too well, or you've worn them so long they have little tears, that when you get home and peel off your socks, your feet are dirty. 
If you went to a bath and prepared yourself to go to someone's house, you're all clean except for what's been walking through the dust in a pair of sandals or barefoot. And so they would wash your feet. So then you were back to being 100% clean and refreshed. And it was an act of kindness. It was a custom of a dusty, dry society. Jesus knew that he had a problem with his 11 apostles. Because if you read the Gospels, they were competing among themselves as to who would be the greatest as soon as he was gone. Jesus settled that by getting down and washing their feet like a servant and telling them they should serve one another. And when he said, ye ought also to wash one another's feet, he meant exactly what he said. You should be willing to get down and be a servant to each of the other apostles when the occasion arises that they have dirty feet and they should be washed. Get down and serve one another. And that's all that John 13 means. It's not giving us an ordinance. The apostle Paul would have repeated it as an ordinance. We would have church discussion about it in the epistles. Come over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. I appreciate to a point, I appreciate to a point those people that see John 13 and say, I want to do that. We should do that as a church. If Jesus said do it, we should do it. I love the attitude. But we have to rightly divide the word of truth lest we require things and make them an ordinance of public worship that Jesus Christ did not make an ordinance of His public worship. I can appreciate that people who have been in a foot washing service, and I have been in quite a few, get warm feelings from the event. Because it is more intimate than walking up to someone and shaking their hand. You know, as I've told you, the last person that shook your hand was the used car salesman just before he ripped you off. That's not very friendly. It's not, that's not intimate. You know, we try to hug. We haven't, you know, we haven't got too good at the holy kiss yet, but once in a while we practice it. I'm disappointed, you know, that there's not more kissing done by those that wash feet. I'm disappointed that they don't say the Lord's Prayer in every assembly since the Lord said this is how you should pray. And I went through all those points when we changed. 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is the proof that it wasn't a New Testament ordinance. See, Jesus told His apostles to do many things that you're not supposed to do. Many. There's a whole document on our website called Jesus or Paul. Who are we supposed to follow? Jesus or Paul? Jesus was a minister of the circumcision to Jews. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And he said, be followers of me as I am a follower of Christ. Because the apostle Paul blew out what Jesus had taught his apostles that was purely Jewish. For instance, just as an example, Matthew 23, Jesus said to submit to those that sit in the seats of the Pharisees. Do you want to, do you want to apply that one? Matthew 23, no way. Jesus was circumcised. We want to follow the example of Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to have him circumcised. We don't do that. It's purely a matter of liberty now. We come to 1 Timothy 5, and here's the Apostle Paul writing to another minister, giving him the rules for proper church order. Now in in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 through 16, it's one subject. Well, let's get, let's start at verse 3. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm just telling you that from verse 3 to verse 16 is one subject, and it's God's welfare system. God has a welfare system, and it's wonderful. And we do submit to it because it's taught right here. His welfare system is that widows who do not have a family, 
who do not have the means by sons, daughters, nephews, or others to provide for them are to be taken under the care of the church and the church is to provide for them. That's why in Acts chapter 6, there was the need to ordain deacons because there was murmuring between the Grecian widows and the Hebrew widows about the disparity in their care. They were not being cared for equally. This is God's welfare system. We will take care of widows that meet the qualifications. Now the Lord, He first of all tells families, tells men, you better take care of your parents. They took care of you when you were young. Now it's your turn to requite them. The word requite means to repay them. And you take care of them. And they actually come into the care of the church where the church provides their full living. It's not just a $20 bill now and then and say, the Lord be with you. It's, do you know what it was in Acts chapter 6? A daily ministration. They were taken care of every day. In setting forth the rules for Timothy, Paul lists what a real widow is. A widow that deserves the support of the church. She's called a widow indeed. Not all widows qualify for the support of the church. He gives a list of character traits that will show a widow indeed to be different from the other widows in a church. Just like when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have character traits of men in order to be bishops. And those character traits distinguish them from other men in the church. For instance, the apt to teach. You don't have to be apt to teach to be a church member, but you have to be apt to teach to be a bishop. Both bishops and deacons need to rule their own families well. Some men in the church won't rule their own families well. These are character traits that distinguish, discriminate, and separate men who have the qualifications for the ministry from those that don't. In 1 Timothy 5, where you're looking, we have a list of traits that separate widows indeed from widows that don't deserve the support of the church. Verse 9. You know, he's been, he's been teaching that widows are to be supported by their children and nephews, and that if they don't take care of their widows at home, then they've denied the faith and they're worse than an infidel. That's down through verse 8, where he's giving the rules for families to take care of their own. Verse 9. But what if we have widows that don't have families? Here's the explanation and the, and the qualification, the prerequisites. First Timothy 5.9 Let not a widow be taken into the number... That is the number of those supported by the church under three score years old. She has to be 60, having been the wife of one man, well reported of for good works, if she have brought up children, if she have lodged strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. A widow indeed has to meet all those qualifications or she doesn't qualify. Just like if a man doesn't meet all the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, he can't be a bishop or a deacon. Now, when we look at this list, there's no faith in it. There's nothing about believing on Jesus Christ. There's no baptism in it. There's no Lord's Supper in it. There's nothing in the list that all church members do because such a thing in the list would have no meaning. If it didn't distinguish between widows indeed and ordinary widows, it would be worthless. These, this list of features, character traits, conduct, reputation, is to show 
Widows indeed, different from ordinary widows. On that basis, when we read, having washed the saints' feet, it was a private, personal act of service done in her home to those that came to her with dirty feet. If it was done in the church, it would be the same as faith, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and wouldn't distinguish widows indeed from ordinary widows. Right. On the power of Paul in verse, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we then understand that the washing of saints' feet is something done in private by only exceptional church members who are diligently following every good work and who have the heart and spirit of Jesus Christ as a true servant. It couldn't be otherwise. Or, this verses 9 and 10 lose all their force and meaning. I thank the Lord. All I want to do is follow what the Lord shows me from the Bible. We have no example in any epistle. Paul's warning to another minister is that only widows indeed are the ones that wash saints' feet. If you look at these other qualifications, you know that there are widows that don't meet them. You know, sometimes there are widows that are in their 50s. And it says she needs to be three score years old. These are all distinguishing traits. She's diligently followed every good work. Not every church member diligently follows every good work. But a woman that's a widow that has diligently followed every good work, the church supports her. And that is full-time support. That is not a little bit of money. And to let her fend for herself in the world. We first of all would go after the family because that's what it says here. For these reasons, a landmark of our church is that we do not wash feet as a public ordinance. Nor do we wash feet at home. Except for once in a while in a very... Well, I mean... I hope you all did before you came today. But we don't do it to others in our homes except on a very rare occasion for some to show something. It doesn't show much because they're not really dirty. It's different. It's not the social custom of the day. But we hope that we all show the humility and service of that because Christ taught us in about a hundred other places that He didn't come to be ministered unto but to minister and we're to follow that example. It's not that we're denying humility. It's not that we're denying service. It's not that we're denying Jesus didn't wash the disciples' feet. And we're not denying that they were, they were to wash each other's feet because they were. I hope when Paul arrived in Jerusalem after his conversion that there was some washing taking place among them if he had traveled and entered into their house before his feet were washed. That was once a landmark of our church. It is no longer a landmark of our church. We do not believe that foot washing is a public ordinance necessary for the church to do in a pretend way in public. They're not really washing feet. Jesus was washing dirty feet. You know, and all the rules that have been made up as to how we once did it, those are all man-made. Right. You know, once you start down that path of washing feet, you've got to answer, do the women wash the men's feet? Do the men wash the women's feet? You know, there's, no, there's nothing like that taught us in the Bible like there is for all other ordinances that's, that have been given to us. Turn to 2 Corinthians 6, and I'm leaving that landmark to go to one more before our break. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What have we covered so far? We've reminded ourselves that we're Bible Christians, and Jesus Christ must have the preeminence in our church at all times. In every way, we want to lift up the Son of God. We do not want to dilute the character of or the conduct or the actions of the God of the Bible at all. 
What the Bible says about God, that is what we want to defend and believe about Him. And that's what we want to teach to our children. And we do not wash feet as a public ordinance. Because 1 Timothy 5 makes it an exceptional private act only of exceptional church members in their home in a day when feet were dirty, traveling even from one house to another. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we had it read to us. Verse 14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. And this landmark is this. We do not allow association with secret societies or even public societies like Freemasons. If we discover that you are a member of the Masonic Lodge, you will repent of that in front of everyone or you will be excluded. We will not take in a member knowingly that is a member of the Masonic Lodge. I hope you remember my great disappointment down in Georgetown when reading through the dedication of the Anapato Baptist Church of Christ building in 1949. They had gravely departed from William and Elisha Screven, the first two pastors. I was reading down through the order of events in the dedication of their new building. It's now called the First Baptist Church of Georgetown. And there was the invocation. That's invoking God's blessing. Do you know who was brought in to do that? The Masons. Is that the only church in the country that does that? No way. Especially in the South. Lots of Masonic influence in the churches that have called themselves the churches of... I don't mean the, the denomination churches of Christ, but Baptist churches. We have nothing to do with those kind of secret societies. That is in direct conflict with these verses. What communion does light have with darkness? That is a Luciferian religion. That is a pagan religion. Just go read a little bit about some of their rites. Go read about their holy underwear and the symbols that they have. Go read about what they're really worshiping. Go read about how the Mormons took from them for their own paganism. We make a stand and say, no way. You cannot be a member of a society like that. Now, you can be part of trade organizations, professional organizations, where you get together with other men and you are helping promote your profession or your business or your trade where there's no religion involved. But when it comes to something like the Masonic Lodge or other organizations like that, no way we are separate from them. And it's a shame that Baptist churches have allowed... Can you imagine a few of those robed guys coming in here and invoking God's blessing on our assembly? for a building that we wanted to put up, that should make your heart turn upside down and your stomach want to throw up. That is terrible. That is a disgrace. They have nothing to do with the religion of Jesus Christ. In fact, they are opposed to it. They are a religion of the devil. Jesus Christ is worshipped by the New Testament, not by their manuals. Not by Morals and Dogma, by Albert Pike or any other book that's ever been written. It's the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ that we want to follow. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ said in John chapter 18 and verse 20, I'll read it to you. He told Pilate, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort 
and in secret have I said nothing. Jesus never did anything secret. He taught in the temple. He taught openly. He fed 5,000 men besides women and children. He preached His Gospel plainly. They have their secret society where you have to be initiated and go through various degrees until you come to the inner circle and the, and the knowledge of the, 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 of the masters of the lodge. We wouldn't allow you to be members of the Shriners. Don't you love the Shriners going around with their crescent moon? We'll use a Shriners hospital. If they want to take care of one of our children, we'll thank them for it. And we'll pay something appropriate for what it costs them to do that. And we've already done that once in our church. But as far as giving donations or associating ourselves with them overtly, we don't have anything to do with the Shriners. They're just a branch of the Masons. And their origin and their religion that they show in their titles and in their symbology is Islam. These are landmarks for our church. Sons, 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 we don't mix the two. They never come into the church of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mean you can have those relationships outside this church and be a member in this church. When we come to the Lord's table, we are free from all those relationships, fellowship, communion, association that 2 Corinthians 6 condemns. I hope I've been plain enough on that simple subject. That would be that would be a friend of the world, and if you're a friend of the world in such a way like that, you're an enemy of God. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us not to have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Reprove them. There's four landmarks of our faith. Our society in Christian churches is ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're taking more and more of that in. They've turned their ears away from the truth unto fables. They are wandering in a way unknown to the New Testament. We are going to stand by the New Testament. We are not going to have fellowship with those things. And I hope you understand the four points that we've covered this morning.